What's the state of COVID-19 at the end of May 2020? Let's talk about it here on this special episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you, The Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with others. I'm committed to regularly publishing episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as episodes that are tangentially related to the pandemic. These episodes are free of corporate sponsorship and advertising. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. And remember that the show notes can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-10. All information in these episodes about COVID-19 reference the most up-to-date information I'm accessing, as well as a lot of personal opinion and reactions from me, and also from guests when I have them. Please note that the situation is changing by the moment, and any information I share here in the course of these episodes may not apply once that data has been updated, expanded upon, or contradicted by the ongoing collection of evidence-based scientific and medical information and discovery. Please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith Coaching COVID-19 podcast is intended for diagnosis or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local Department of Health, or any other evidence-based resource that you trust. And if you hear or read something I've shared that appears to be erroneous, please send me an email at keith at nursekeith.com with any evidence or data you have that you want to share with me so that I can learn from you and post a public correction if appropriate. Thank you for understanding, stay safe, and keep informed. Okay, friends and colleagues, we're at a new milestone here in the U.S. of more than 100,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, a pretty grim number if you think about it in the bigger picture, and if you think about those individual lives that have been lost and the people, families, communities who are impacted specifically by the loss of one of those people who are real people who are now no longer with us. So I'm recording this on May 31st, 2020, just so you understand the context of this particular episode. So in my reading and my perusing of the interwebs, those people with the finger on the pulse of this pandemic say that many deaths have likely gone unreported as our testing has been lackluster, as opposed to what the president has been intimating recently, as some people have actually been turned away when requesting testing. And we know that some people are dying at home or in facilities without having been tested, and those are not being counted as COVID deaths. We also know that approximately 30% of the PCR tests, those nasal swab tests, are false negatives. And we also know that the serology tests for antibodies someone showing that they actually have had the virus and now have antibodies are also highly erroneous in many cases. So our testing is, like I said, lackluster, and the numbers don't necessarily reflect reality. So with this more than 100,000 confirmed deaths, I can say unequivocally from my own, this is just my opinion, I would add probably 10 to 15% to that number 
maybe 20% of the deaths that have actually been caused by COVID-19. Now, in the New York Times, in a recent article on May 27th, 2020, they were reporting that the death toll here in the U.S. is far higher than any other nation in the world. And in this article, and I will have a link in the show notes to this May 27th article, it says, quote, the toll exceeds the number of U.S. military combat fatalities in every conflict since the Korean War. It matches the toll in the United States of the 1968 flu pandemic, and it's approaching the 116,000 killed in another flu outbreak a decade before that in the 1950s. The pandemic The COVID-19 pandemic is on track to be the country's deadliest public health disaster since the 1918 flu pandemic, in which about 675,000 Americans died. Now, I'm not particularly clear that we're going to get to 675,000 American deaths. That's a pretty high number. But the fact is that this pandemic is pretty virulently spreading, and Here's my take on this right now on May 31st, 2020. So while the economy is opening up in many states around the country and many cities at varying rates and with what we perceive and actually can see with vastly differing levels of caution, cases are still manifesting in a lot of hotspots and there are new hotspots emerging. And in some areas, We even see citizens of different political persuasions choosing to wear a mask or not, apparently based on their political affiliation. I'll leave that to you to um, puzzle through. We also know, unfortunately and sadly, but not unexpectedly, that African Americans are the hardest hit of all groups in the U.S., with Latinx people also suffering disproportionately. Now, I pulled some data from an article in apmresearchlab.org, and it is a chart of COVID deaths by race in the United States, and I will have the links to this in the show notes as well. So they say that aggregated deaths from COVID-19 in the 40 states and District of Columbia that have reached new highs for all groups, and this is what they found, that One in every 1,850 Black Americans has died. That's 54.6 deaths per 100,000. One in 4,000 Latin Americans have died. That's 24.9 deaths per 100,000. One in 4,200 Asian Americans has died. That's 24.3 deaths per 100,000. And one in 4,400 white Americans has died. That's 22.7 deaths per 100,000. So if 54 African Americans per 100,000 have died as compared to, let's say, 22.7 white Americans per 100,000, This tells us something about racial disparities and social determinants of health here in the U.S. This is not my place in this episode to dig really deeply into this race issue, but I will have a link in the show notes to a America Dissected, I'm going to write this down right now, America Dissected Coronavirus podcast, which digs deeply into this racial issue. And they, in there, talk about public health, about how African-Americans often, not always, often live in urban communities where you have more pollution, 
you have worse air quality, worse water quality, etc. Not to say that there are many poorer white Americans and Latinx Americans who live in those areas as well. However, what we are seeing is a double death rate of Black Americans compared to Latino, Latinx people, Asian Americans, and white Americans. Pretty much double or a little more than double. That is something to think about, especially, this is something that surprised me, but I saw this, that African Americans comprise about 14% of the American population. So if you do the math, that's highly disturbing. And I will have these numbers and the links to the larger research article in the show notes at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-10. So here in New Mexico, my home state for the last decade, the indigenous mortality rate is eight times as high as the white mortality rate. And in Arizona, the indigenous mortality rate is more than five times the rate for all other groups. So with 315 indigenous deaths between them, these two states alone account for more than two-thirds of all known indigenous deaths. So if indigenous people, if Native Americans, which how we also refer to them, or some also just refer to them or themselves as Indians, if they had died of COVID-19 at the same rate as white Americans, about 13,000 Black Americans, 1,300 Latino Americans, and 300 Asian Americans would still be alive. I will have those numbers in the show notes as well. So a New York Times article, also another one from May 27th, just a few days ago, stated that California is now the fourth state with over 100,000 cases, identified cases of COVID-19. And remember, just remember that we have about a 30% rate of false negatives. So if you do the math, also those numbers are definitely higher. Another New York Times article from May 28th on the upshot, I will have that in there. This is about herd immunity. And let's talk a little bit about herd immunity. You know, for diseases like measles, polio, the ones that we've almost completely eradicated, you know, pertussis, based on vaccination rates, of course, we're always going for that herd immunity where enough people have antibodies and enough antibodies that the general population is relatively protected because of that number, proportion of people with antibodies. So what I'm reading so far, based on the research and based on the opinion of those in the know, those experts out there, the virologists, epidemiologists, and public health experts who we're leaning on very heavily right now, that the all-important herd immunity that we'd like to see that protects us against those other aforementioned diseases is they think somewhere around 60% of people in the world or any given country, 60% having antibodies against COVID-19. So let's talk about the details of how herd immunity is looking so far in some major cities around the world. Bear in mind, 60% is our target for herd immunity. In New York City, research shows at the moment that 19.9% have antibodies as compared to our 60% goal. In Madrid, Spain, where they have been really hard hit by COVID-19, 
the number of people with antibodies at the moment appears to be somewhere around 11.3%. In London, 17.5%, where they've also been hit pretty hard. Boston, Massachusetts, 9.9%. Wuhan, China, 10% herd immunity. And Barcelona, which has also been very hard hit, 7.1%. Now, bear in mind, again, I have to keep saying bear in mind, or remember that our serology tests, our antibody tests, are also deeply flawed here in the U.S. I can't find information about how flawed they are in other countries, on other continents. However, even if they're somewhat flawed, let's say 30%, still, that 60% marker is far, far away. And think about it. Our economy, our country is opening up really quickly right now in many, many places. And people seem to really have, well, we could say social distancing fatigue. And I understand why. Gosh, I really understand why I'm experiencing social distancing fatigue too, aren't you? So people are lightening up, getting together more, posing for group selfies and parks and stuff. And, you know, that gives me pause because if we have this very low herd immunity percentage and we're looking at 60% that we want, but people are now really getting out there and, and really interacting at high levels, this makes me a little nervous in terms of what's going to happen this summer, in the fall of 2020, and in the winter between 2020 and 2021. Now, you could say that, well, let people get together, let people relax. This is kind of an experiment with people's lives, but kind of let them do it. And we will see what happens over the coming months. Maybe herd immunity will increase because so many people who get COVID, I think about 80% or something, correct me if I'm wrong, actually recover. And those people who recover must have antibodies, right? Or at least some antibodies. So maybe this opening up will create more herd immunity. I mean, I'm open to that. And man, I would love that, wouldn't you? So maybe, just maybe, that's what's going to happen. And we just have to wait and see. Speaking of which, you know, some countries, notably Sweden and Great Britain to a certain extent for a little while, they experimented with not locking down very much in an effort to build immunity in their populations. But even in those places, studies are showing no more than 7 to 17, maybe 20% of people have been infected so far. So that experiment also hasn't worked, which is puzzling a lot of people and having them scratching their heads. Like in Sweden, they were letting people eat in restaurants, cheek by jowl, and hang out together without much restrictions. And they're not getting to herd immunity any more quickly than we are. So this is a real head scratcher. And in New York City, which has had, you know, the biggest outbreak here in our country, in the US, or my country, you may be listening from another country, of course, 20% of the city's residents have been infected by the virus as of around this time in May 2020, according to a survey that they did of people in grocery stores and community centers. So, you know, surveys are surveys and we don't know how accurate they are. And man, it just seems like all the numbers out there are questionable. And yeah, they are, <laughs> they're questionable. It's even questionable what kind of herd immunity we need to really develop, you know, communal resistance to this virus. And 
epidemiologists are hovering in that 60 to 80% of the population having been infected and having resistance. And if we have a lower level of immunity like we have now, say hovering around 20 to 25% or something like that, this can definitely slow the spread. Things are going to slow down, of course, but the herd immunity number is really indicative of the point where infections are substantially less likely to move into that place of a large outbreak that spreads between many, many, many people. So here's a quote from that New York Times article that I was referencing a few minutes ago. All estimates of herd immunity assume that a past infection will protect people from becoming sick a second time. There is suggestive evidence that people do achieve immunity to the virus, but it's not yet certain whether that is true in all cases, how robust the immunity may be, or how long it will last. That's unquote. The research is ongoing about when you're immune. Is that immunity permanent? Do you need to be quote unquote inoculated again? You know how when you get an MMR and then eventually they find that you need to have another one? or you get a tetanus shot every, what is it, 10 years these days. So you have to get boosted again. You need a booster because your immunity fades. So even when, or you could say if, but I think when we do get an effective vaccine, we don't know how long the immunity from that vaccine will last and people may need a booster. So as a former public health nurse who who was working during H1N1 back in the around 2008-2009, the ability to create and then distribute and then administer a vaccine to tens or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, that is a big logistical undertaking. We can do it. It's going to take a lot of work. And there's a lot of people who are anti-vaxxers, so we're just going to have to get as many people vaccinated as possible when that time comes, maybe in 2021 or 2022, to start getting that herd immunity number up. So boy, lots of things are up in the air right now. So let's talk a little bit more about herd immunity and here's something from that same article. So it says, if you're infected with the virus and walk into a room where everyone is susceptible to it, you might infect two or three other people on average. On the other hand, if you go in and three out of the four people in that room are already immune, then on average, you'll infect one person or fewer in that room. That person in turn would be able to infect fewer new people too, and that makes it much more likely that a large outbreak will not take place. So that's really the bottom line of how herd immunity works. If you're infected and you walk into a room where the majority of the people in there already have antibodies are immune, that's where the virus gets relatively stopped in its tracks or at least gets significantly slowed down. So here's where some of my concerns are focusing right now. You know, back in late February, early March, I was saying publicly that we should shut down the airspace and stop air travel and even trains and buses because people were spreading the virus all over. Do you remember back in March when the president and the CDC and others were starting to say that people should not gather in large groups and et cetera, et cetera. And the CDC hadn't yet come forward with evidence that we all had to wear masks. So 
at that time, planes were full. People were going on vacation. And some of the sequencing of the genome of various viral strains and contact tracing show that people going on spring break or flying to Hawaii on vacation took the virus with them. We can actually see that now with genomic sequencing. And I know several people involved in that particular process. So right now, airplanes are filling up again, and even some even some airlines are choosing not to leave the middle seats open. Some are, some aren't. And I'm going to put in the show notes a link to Sanjay Gupta's recent coronavirus fact versus fiction podcast episode dated May 28th, because he talks about how airlines are having different standards regarding sanitation and hygiene, social distancing, mask requirements, food and beverage service, as well as how many passengers can be allowed on a plane. So some are, of course, choosing to book passengers and not leaving those middle seats empty. So boy, uh, I wouldn't want to be sitting next to someone infected. And (laughs) I am a little concerned, well, actually, I'm a lot of concerned about what's going to happen with all of this air travel and vacationing and stuff happening right now around the country and around the world. But I'm focusing here on the U.S. at this very moment. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. There are many concerns on many sides. Some people feel the economy just has to open and we have to let the chips fall. There are many groups out there saying that the science is false, that the virus isn't contagious, that it's a quote unquote false flag um, situation, which means that it's something created to scare the public as a ploy by the government to control us. People are posting on social media pictures of masks and saying, this is a mind control device. That's hard for me to swallow. I actually have to admit, I had to unfriend and block someone I know here in Santa Fe who's posting things like that on Facebook, Instagram, and by email. And I just had to block everything because it just raises my hackles so much to see someone who's, I believe, very intelligent, believing that this is a false flag event and that it's simply to control the public. That is really hard for me to digest when I have good friends saving lives or trying to save lives in ICUs and ERs and PCUs all over the United States and then more colleagues around the world fighting this virus. People are dying of the virus. And then people right down the street from me are claiming that the virus doesn't actually even exist. So yes, these are factors we can't control. We can choose to fight back against fake news and disinformation. We can speak with friends. We can post on social media. You, yes, you can do so. You can write letters to the editor in support of science because science is being undermined, especially in the United States right now, but also in other places around the world. And we need as nurses and healthcare providers to stand up for science, to stand up for truth and facts and fight back against the people who are spreading disinformation. So if you feel, you know, I really want to do more, or maybe you're a person like me who's not a clinician and you're sitting at home or you're working in a non-clinical position, you feel like, man, I really want to contribute, but I can't work in an ICU or, or just can't even bear the thought, or really I'm not skilled enough to do so. Like I'm not skilled enough to do so myself. So you can write letters to the editor. You can post things on social media that are facts. You can come to me and ask me for the evidence-based stuff that I'm looking at so that you can post those on the internet 
and be part of the good information battle rather than the misinformation battle. And this is an information war to a large extent at this point, folks. And in an election year, it's even more important that we keep the truth out there because like they said in the X-Files with David Duchovny, remember, the truth is out there. And the truth is out there, folks. COVID-19 is real. It's not gone away. Even though it seems the entire United States is acting like it's spring break for everybody, it just feels that way to me right now. People are going a little crazy. And I understand why, (laughs) but well, we need to think really clearly about this and do what we think is right and take part in the information war and be on the right side of history. So will you join me in that? And if you need help figuring out how to do that, if you even want me to edit your letter to the editor or look at a post you're going to post on social media and you want to make sure you've got it right. Email me, Keith at NurseKeith.com. I will actually help you edit that letter to the editor. This is my sworn promise. I will help you do that. No charge, no coaching. This is me helping you because you will be joining in the information war with me. So if you want to do that, please get in touch with me, Keith at NurseKeith.com. I will help you. And let's fight this particular battle, this war together and fight against misinformation and inform the public the way they need to be informed. So we all know that the brunt of the care for the ill and dying patients is borne by those already experiencing secondary trauma. My friends in the ICUs and the ERs and med surge units and telemetry units and PCUs around the country and around the world, thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. Please reach out reach out for help, reach out for support, take the day off. Don't feel like you have to be in there saving the world. If you need some time to take care of yourself, please take care of yourself. You can be much more effective if you step back, take a breath, go on a drive, spend the day in the park, spend the day in bed watching Netflix, whatever it happens to mean for you. And if you would like to check out some really, really wonderful free CEUs on self-care for you, for you nurses, during the course of this COVID-19 pandemic, please go to elitecme.com forward slash webinars. That's elitecme.com forward slash webinars. That's E-L-I-T-E-C-M-E, elitecme.com forward slash webinars. I have done several webinars there that you might want to check out. One is called Emotional Intelligence and Team Collaboration in the Face of COVID-19. One is called Stress, Burnout, and Self-Care in the Face of COVID-19. My friend, Dr. Renee Thompson, recently did what called From Exhaustion to Extraordinary Strategies to Reverse Nurse Fatigue. And my dear, dear friend, Tiffany Swedeen, an ICU nurse from Seattle, Washington, God bless her for working in the in the ICU up there in Seattle. She did one called Mindful Avoidance of Maladaptive Coping. And there's some great ones coming up very soon. So if you want to check them out, please, please do. There's some great stuff coming up at Elite CME. These are free CEUs for you. You can earn many, many CEUs all about you caring for yourself and us caring for you by creating these CEUs. So please check them out. It'll be really helpful. And it's because we care about you so, so very much. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to the special COVID-19 bonus episode, Diatribe. 
by me, Nurse Keith, here on The Nurse Keith Show. There'll be many more to come. And remember, the show notes can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-10. It'll all be there, all the links, all the data, all the information. Please check it out and share if you care to. I hope you feel uplifted, empowered, and informed from this episode. And I want you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your wider community. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnson of 520R Podcasting, who kindly produces these bonus episodes free of charge to me as a public service to you. And Mark Cappiespeason, our stalwart social media ringmaster. I am so proud of and thankful to and thankful for Mark and Rob for helping me keep the wheels moving in the right direction. Stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith signing off and saying adios till next time from beautiful, beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm out.